welcome to the Disruptor Series Podcast, 3% Conference Special Edition. We're celebrating the 10th anniversary of 3% with incredible guests and powerful conversations with people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here are your hosts, Asha Davis and Rob Schwartz. Well, thank you for tuning in. We're really excited to celebrate one of the world's most disruptive forces, the 3% Conference. And on today's show, we are thrilled to speak with two disruptive leaders, Katrine Dubois, who heads up TBWA Media Arts Lab, the bespoke creative agency for Apple, and Nancy Reyes, the CEO of legendary creative agency, TBWA Chiat New York. Katrine, Nancy, welcome to this special 3% conference edition of the Disruptor Series podcast. Great to be here. My dog is very excited, so I'm apologizing up front. Maybe we can interview the dog too, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're here at the 10th anniversary of the 3% conference, and you know, and I think just thinking about this, I mean, could you imagine 10 years ago we'd have this many female leaders in the advertising business? I mean, Nancy, like, was this even possible in 2011? It was always possible. Whether or not enough people believed it is a whole other story. So I, I agree with you, Rob. I think it's been a long time coming. It's a big sea change. I can feel it. I'm sure Katrine can feel it. We can see it. It was always possible. It's just nice that it's being recognized and, and that companies are doing something about it now. I mean, mm -hmm. Rob, would it have been possible that we have a female co-host on Disruptor Series, you know? <laughs> First of all, let me just tell you, 10 years ago, no one had conceived of a podcast. <laughs> it was just radio then. It wasn't this thing. I think the people at Apple did, but what else? Uh, so <laughs> I am always thrilled to have you ride shotgun, Asha, anytime. <laughs> So speaking of celebrations and celebrating awesome, powerful women, Nancy, you were recently recognized by AdColor as a legend in this industry. So first of all, huge congratulations from the whole Disruptor Series team. But we're curious, you know, what do you think actually makes somebody a legend in this business? Thank you, Asha. Um, that means a lot. And I think this Legend Award means a lot, although I can't even believe I, I got it, I have to say. I think the, the idea with the Legend or just sort of ever kind of getting awarded something like that is that you're leaving an imprint on an industry that will make it better than when you entered it or when you found it. That's how I internalize the Ad Color Legend Award. When I first started in this business now, my God, a really long time ago, I feel like it's 25, almost 25 years ago, there weren't a whole lot of people who looked like me in the business, certainly not at the highest levels. And so the idea that noticing that, getting into a position where I could contribute to that, change it, fix it, pull up people as I rose, that's what it means to me. So now when we look at the industry, the shape of it looks different, certainly from a female perspective, from people of color, from underrepresented communities, it looks different than 25 years ago. Still a long way to go, but that's to me legend. Do we leave this place different than when we began? Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think that that holds true in so many industries as well. You know, that that's probably one of the best descriptions of what a legend means that, that I've heard, certainly. Katrine, you lead what is arguably one of the most coveted pieces of business in the entire industry, particularly in advertising. And that, of course, is Apple, as we heard Rob intro before. Based on what we're seeing, obviously you're doing an amazing, amazing job. You know, Apple continues to be the Apple of everyone's eye when we ask, you know, what are our favorite ads. From your perspective, what's the best part of playing a leadership role on one of the world's most iconic brands? 
Anyone who works at Media Arts Lab, whether you're in a leadership position or not, you're standing on the shoulders of giants. And we actually use that a lot and we say that a lot. And I think in many ways that is the best part of the job because it gives you huge responsibility, also huge pressure, because you don't want to mess it up, right? You want to continue the legacy that was created by all those incredible people that went before us. And they put the bar so high, but inevitably myself and all the leaders within Media Arts Lab, all we want to do is raise the bar, right? And constantly keep raising the bar. So I definitely think it's continuing the legacy and having the privilege of continuing the legacy of Media Arts Lab is what the best part of being a leader there is. One piece on on the standing on the shoulders of giants. I I love how you you phrase that, Katrine. I was talking to somebody about uh, 1984, the spot specifically, the actual 60 seconds of film. And when you think about it, again, here we are at 3%. In 1983, when they were producing 1984, somebody was smart enough to make the hero of the spot a woman. Yep. You know, when we think about the spot, it's the woman who throws a sledgehammer. So uh, there's something in the DNA of Apple that really was thinking about the future even back then. So I, I don't know, maybe there's there's something that you're experiencing when you work with Apple that kind of understands, I don't know, how to do things the right way. Definitely. I, I, th- I think they as clients, I think we as an agency are pretty forward thinking in terms of what the shape of an agency should look like, what the makeup of the talent should be, what the gender makeup should be, what all of it, right? The, the diversity of our talent is critical to what we are as an agency. And we've got some way to go in where we are today and where we need to get going. And I guess the first step in that is accepting that you have more changes to make, but that you're willing to put the effort into it and the work into it to make the changes. So so I think, yes, 1983 slash 1984 set the tone. And I think when you look at the makeup of Media Arts Lab now, we are 60% female and we have six offices around the world and we have five out of those six managing directors are female. So it's a heavily female skewed leadership team in the agency now. Wow, so Media Arts Lab and Apple think different, right? So we're here to really discuss that next decade of disruption in leadership, particularly, and something that I'm very excited about. And you both are fantastic examples of what that next decade will look like. You know, I think you're both giants that folks like me would be honored to stand on the shoulders of. And so it's really interesting, as we talked about, because this episode is kind of actually meta because we are disrupting the norm again, as we talked about before. this all-female boss panel. In your opinions, and and this is a a question, Katrine, both for you and Nancy, what are, in your opinions, are there differences between male and female leadership, or do you think that it's more individual-based versus gender? Just curious to hear your thoughts there. It's a personal answer, right? And it's a personal opinion, because I think studies have proven both sides, right, that there isn't or that there is. I think As females, what I feel we've come a long way in the last decades is that I don't ever feel like I have to behave like a male. That was not the case 20 years ago, 25 years ago. When I was a junior person on an all-male team, I think I was definitely the odd person out and I had to behave like a male, which, you know, has, has had repercussions on my swearing habits in later life. So I think for me, the critical part is that we are more and more allowed and need to be who we are as humans. 
And therefore, that is bringing a different type of leadership in, in any industry, right? So whether it's advertising or, or any industry. And so I think that's changing things. And I think that's, for me, the most liberating thing is seeing not just myself, but the people in the agency being able to be themselves and bringing the female side to the equation and to the table of leadership. Yeah, I agree with Katrine that it's an individual or a personal response. And, you know, I, I think I've also read the science and the business studies on the differences between male and, and female leadership. I think I prefer to think about us as modern leaders. I heard somebody talk about it that way the other day, and that resonated more with me than when people discuss the differences between male leadership and female leadership. And by modern leadership, I mean leadership that is more transformational in nature. You know, many modern leaders are looking to change the dynamics or change the systems in which we've operated or we've come to accept as just that's just the norm. So I think many modern leaders are challenging those systemic concepts, behaviors, and, and beliefs, they are more team-based, I think. You know, that is something, again, that is that is more me than maybe other people. I, I feel like I lead with a team. I believe in self-governed teams, empowering teams of people when they're great. Let's Let's make sure to support them and develop them and grow them more. When they're not great, let's figure out what's wrong with them. But that's what I think of modern leadership. It requires a significant emphasis and passion for teams because teams are what drive change and transformation. And that's where I think we are right now on the precipice of just what's the new way of operating? What's the new way of leading? What's the new way of organizing and behaving as an organization? I, I will say, though, as a dude leader, and of course, Nancy, you and I work closely together, I think... I did learn some things from Nancy that I wasn't doing, at least uh, instinctively, like asking someone else's opinion. I think that there was, you know, what Nancy brought to me, what ultimately I think happened for our team was I felt less like I had to have every answer. And she kind of reminded me that not only do you not need to have every answer, but your answer is probably not as good as what the collective wisdom is going to be. So why don't you kind of open some things up? So I think that there were some just maybe very natural things that I think, you know, and again, as I've talked to, you know, other leaders that there were some things just that were not more natural to, to female leadership, which I think is more in line with, with what Nancy calls modern leadership. So thank you for that. I agree with that. And I think the, the description of modern leadership is great, Nancy. And I agree that there's maybe character traits within females that are more akin to that type of leadership. But I think it's hard to say female leaders are better than male leaders or because it is so individual, right? And I've, and I've known a lot of male leaders that have been brilliant and that have been brilliant at listening to the group and to the team and been, been able to do that. And there's been others, male ones, that were completely incapable of doing that, right? But... So, so, I, so I think, yes, I definitely agree that female traits are more akin to modern leadership, sort of on paper. Yeah, and it, it's interesting kind of being on the, the flip side for uh, a better part of my career, you know, having been led by, you know, both male and female leaders and kind of seeing that shift as well. Like, Katrine, as you talked about quote unquote, the old days, you know, where a lot of times, you know, you would be the only woman on an all-male team. It, depending on kind of the industry you're, you're in and, and even quite frankly, the types of clients you're working on, right? And that unsaid or unspoken pressure to feel like if you want to excel and move up, that you have to suppress some of the things that might come natural to you and act in this 
this way. And even when you would read books, you know, depending on the year it was written, and it's like, what makes a leader or things like that, a lot of them are, are male traits or male skills in terms of being, you know, extra assertive. And even if you don't know, pretend you don't know, it almost felt a little Machiavellian type of thing, you know, and sort of experiencing and seeing that shift throughout my career, you know, my my career is about 11, 12 years at this point, you know, and and so I've actually kind of seen some of that shift in real life, you know, it it has been honestly quite wonderful to see and and to feel a little bit more cared for and and heard by some of the leaders um, that I've worked with. But despite all that, and despite the rise of amazing leaders like yourselves, that old school mentality is not eradicated. And actually, it still feels like it's more prevalent than not, you know, unfortunately. And so that it's this hierarchical command and control, like I'm the boss and you're not. And that feeling where, you know, someone is basically trying to lord power over the people that they have power over. That feels gross, you know, to be honest, when you're on the receiving end of that, you know, and I'm sure feeling pressure to be that type of leader, if that's not what naturally comes to you, I'm sure is not a great feeling either. And in that manner, and the fact that you kind of see that as the norm, it hasn't really lost its relevance yet, you know, because there are still a whole stream of people that still think that that's the way that you're supposed to be. Those modern leadership books have not gotten to to the majority of leaders. And so I'm curious to know, A, do you guys agree with the sentiment that this is still kind of prevalent or and the norm? And, and if so, kind of why do you think that that might be? Yeah, I I would say I would agree with you, Asha, that I think it's absolutely still around. That's probably why it feels so hard to lead in this new modern way, because we're pushing up against an accepted system. So I think like a lot of challenges that we face, it's a journey and it's going to take a while. And, you know, I think I've come to terms with the fact that I'm probably going to not live to see it completely eradicated and changed. You know, it goes back to, are, are we leaving it better than, you know, than we started? I think I read some HBR article that said in order to get it to be sort of, you know, true equality between men and women and have both ways of leading or multiple ways of leading be, be the norm, we're about 200 years away from that. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of what happens when you have systems that just require so much, you have to overwork and overtrain the brain to bring consciousness to it versus something that now behaves intuitively. But the more we have women leaders, the more they'll bring up more women leaders, the more that they'll bring up more women leaders and we'll start to behave in a way that feels more intuitive versus more sort of, I have to think about it. I have to make sure I'm consciously doing something different. But I, I think we're on a journey and it, and it sounds alarming sometimes to say that 200 year number, but I actually think it also sounds a little sobering because when you face or when I face the daily challenge of trying to change this system, I remind myself, I don't know what part of the 200 year journey I'm on, but you know, I I don't think I'm on a hundred near 199, (laughs) you know, like we're we're somewhere in this thing. So it's not meant to be perfect, but the fact that it's hard means that, that it's working, that it's, that we're trying to change it, that we're running up against the exact thing that we're trying to, to push up against and change. Right. If I look back at 10, imagine 10 years ago, and I, you know, I remember sort of sitting in an office with whatever, five male leaders and being the only female, like we've come a long way. So there is, I think we have to take, there's hope, right? The the progress that has been made in terms of types of leadership and the, in my sphere anyway, right? In uh, the diminishing 
prevalence of command and control, I think gives me hope that we are moving in the right direction and that it's going to go keep moving in that direction. I cannot see a world where we're going backwards to where command and control is deemed to be the new norm and the way forward, right? I do think at times, even as female, particularly maybe even as female leaders, we have to be careful that there is a difference between command and control and hierarchy. I think we do all work in organizations that have some type of hierarchy, right? Some flatter than others. And there are people at the top of those trees that are needing to make decisions for the greater good of the business. Now, we might agree with those or not agree with those, but that's ultimately the ecosystem we work with. And I think sometimes what I have found at least is that sometimes those lines blur a little bit. And I think a leadership style of command and control is very different to hierarchy in an organization that you are going to get, you know, whether you work in Sweden or whether you work in America. And I, I think it's important to distinct between the two. Yeah, I, I think, Katrina, I think you make, you make a, a good point. And I think we have to move from hierarchical to what I would call collaborarchical. Meaning that you still have the hierarchy, but the collaboration pieces and, and the way of collaboration works, but you still have, a, a, you know, the key decision maker. Yeah. One thing I was going to point out is that I feel like so many of our systems, and oh my God, Nancy, 200 years, I can't, that's, <laughs> that's a long time. There's not enough chirogenics in the world that we're going to be around for that one. But I think some of these structures in these companies come from the military. So I think as, as you look towards how military is you know, changing and military is going you know, less command and control and more into these different cells and these different areas you know, within worlds of different cyber and all that good stuff, it is more collaborative. It is less general to troops and there's more of a, I don't know, kind of an interesting platoon uh, system with, with a leader who ultimately makes a decision. Something like that. I'm curious, actually, um, uh, Nancy and Katrine, you know, we, we're talking a little bit about hierarchy here and something that folks, I think, sometimes forget, regardless if you're, you know, the CEO, president, managing director, whatever, you still have a boss somewhere. There's still someone that you got to for lack of a better word, report to, you know, or that you're still accountable to. And I'm curious, how do you or do you switch that up? Do you change your approach when you're dealing with someone that, that you're accountable to or, or a leader versus when you are leading your, your teams and your opposites? I think it's a great question. I don't know for Nancy, but I think for me personally, it's a very deliberate decision that I made many, many years ago. And I was at TPWA in London, in fact, when I made this decision because of a male boss that I had at the time that the way I'm talking to you now, Asha, yeah. is the way that I talk to Tormir at Apple. It's the way that I talk to Troy Rohan, and it's the way that I talk to an account exec in the building at Media Arts Lab. It's the way that I talk to someone in China, to Singapore. To them. Like, I think I have to be true to who I am and what my beliefs and my values are and convey those in the most effective way rather than change who I am depending on who I'm talking to. I think it's a very bizarre maybe as it might seem but it was a very conscious decision that I made because I saw someone not doing that and felt it was disingenuous and I think there has to be a an authenticity to leadership that breeds trust and I think trust is so critical in the jobs that we do that I wouldn't want to be a different person in front of 
different people in the organization that I have to deal with. I think that's such a brilliant way to articulate it, Katrine. I love that. I love that. I think that one of the things that I've learned more as I've grown is to be more vulnerable, which I think would classically be defined as a more female leadership characteristic and the the benefits of that vulnerability to be sort of, you know, I think somebody told me once, we don't have two lives. We have one life. We we don't have this personal life over here and this business life over there. We just have one life. And so the idea that we would fluidly go between those two and and expose some of those vulnerabilities that we have, including the, I don't have the answer. I don't know. You know, those kinds of things I think are important. And maybe 10 years ago, I would say, if I was going to be in front of my boss, I have to act with the utmost confidence. I have to be so certain of every answer. I have to go in there saying, this is the way that it is, and this is what I believe, and there's no refuting what I'm saying. I think in today's world, the thing that I end up leaning into the most is just the honesty and the vulnerability that comes with honesty. This is what I know. This is what I don't know. This is what I'm trying to figure out. You know, This is what I think I'm gonna do. This is where I need help. Like There is nothing wrong with exposing what you know and what you don't know to both the people that you serve and the boss that you report into. That's great. It's kind of, I love, uh, Katrine, what you had said as well about sort of that authenticity, you know, across those aspects. And and yeah, Nancy, to your point, it's very taxing to try to be all of these different people, you know, at at all of the times. It's it's akin to something that is relevant to a, a lot of folks of color, like myself, around code switching, right? And when you work in a place where you don't feel like you have to do that, your quality of life is much better because it's it's very mentally taxing to feel that you have to be all these different people depending on who you're talking to right so let, let's talk a little bit about something that that doesn't describe either of you at all the world's worst bosses you know um so i'm i'm curious to know you know about the worst bosses that you've ever worked with. Obviously, we're not naming names here at all. But you know, where did you see things go awry? And what, if anything, did you learn from them? And this could be bosses that either you worked under or they may have been peers to you as well. I have one kind of little salacious tidbit to share and then one that maybe is, is a little bit more normal. <laughs> but I, you know, really early on in my career, I had And I didn't know that this boss did that, but I didn't know the answer. So I, you know, I came into advertising through a program. I didn't grow up wanting to be in advertising. I didn't know the first thing about advertising. So I arrived at my job and, you know, my boss would tell me to do all sorts of things. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't, what do you, what do you, what is a PDF? Why would I, who is this? What is a creative director? And why would I go get a logo from this person? Like it just, nothing made sense. So I would ask the question, I would say, okay, well, who, who is that person? And, and when I, when I get that logo, what am I asking for? What is the use of that? And, you know, she would sort of quickly run through the answer to that. I would never be able to capture it all. And then she would hang up the phone and she would say, idiot, stupid. And I, of course, I didn't know that because I was someplace else, but I had a colleague who happened to hear this interaction every time. And he came and said to me, you know what? Every time you ask a question, she's calling you an idiot. She's calling you stupid. And that to me, I mean, it's, it's, I was young, you know, and maybe I was asking questions that were super annoying, but that's one of the worst things that we can do to somebody, you know, who's young, who doesn't come from this, who wouldn't know anything about advertising is to make them feel like the actual act of asking questions to learn more is a sign of stupidity 
right, or a sign of weakness. I want a name. I'm I'm gonna I want to do a lot of phony phone calls to. <laughs> I mean, isn't that crazy? But don't you think that the whole the, I I think that asking questions is a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness, because you expose what you don't know and you say, okay, I'm not an expert in this. I'd like to learn from you what is an expert in that. So shutting that down is really is really terrible. The less salacious example is I had a boss who kept telling me that I was incredible and awesome and so competent and so wonderful. And I would say, but I'm struggling with this one thing. And he would say, but you, you are not struggling with that. It's fine. You're terrific. You're wonderful. And I would say, I really need help. Can, is there any way that you could, that you could sit down with me and help me? I can't figure that. No, you're great. You're awesome. It's the same kind of thing where that boss was likely trying to do this thing of saying you're wonderful and instilling confidence and making me feel really good about myself. But again, suppress that moment of asking for help. You know, that moment of like, I actually, I'm, I know I'm amazing, by the way. I'm, I, I know I'm great. I just need help with this one thing. Let's not make that not a, not a real need that should be fulfilled. So that's, I think, for me, the biggest thing about the worst bosses. I mean, I, I gave you a really salacious one because that, that one is just a good story to tell people. And they always laugh and they're like, who the heck was that? But it's the same concept of actually some of the worst bosses I've ever had leave no room for learning, leave no room for asking for help. And, and I think that their attempt is to say that you should know this so that you're perfectly competent. But what it does is it actually makes you feel even more incompetent, even more stupid. Like help is not something you're ever supposed to ask for. That's interesting. I think that's clearly a cultural thing because that happens anywhere in the world, including in the, in the UK. I think, you know what, I, it's hard to say worst bosses because I, I, I can't, th I actually found it really hard to go, what's the worst boss I have? I mean, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for any of them, right? Because to Nancy's point, like even the guy who was going, you're amazing, you're amazing. The fact that you're aware that what he was doing wasn't helpful means that you take it in yourself to not do that, right? And so all the worst bits of people or bosses that I've had, I've definitely gone, well, I'm never gonna do it that way. And I will never do it that way. And so so there isn't, I don't think there is a worse boss. I think the, the thing that I've been aware of for, I guess, a long time, as far as I can remember, maybe account director level or something, you know, where you start to get more senior is being able to be big and have your voice heard, but also being able to be small and listen to other people. And I think a lot of the bosses I had in my time were unable to do that. They were only able to be the big people and the people that had to be heard and seen and be the alpha male in the room and I think very early on I was like I will never be like that I will be the one that will be quiet when I need to be quiet and listen to what the people have to say and and I think there were a lot of those right in and, and we're talking like late 1990s early 2000s in the United Kingdom <laughs> for anyone who's listening to this who lived through those times there was a lot of people who wanted to hear their own voice so I think that's what I learned from to, to not repeat that Asha, are you uh, ready to switch gears into uh, the journeys? Yeah, for sure. Please. That, that was just really interesting to me, you know, just hearing the, not only the traits of some things that you guys went through with leaders that were not great, but also um, taking them, both of you talked about taking those as learning experiences and helped you identify the types of leaders that you did not want to be. I'm curious to know when you were first identified 
as a leader. We talk about, you know, as, as Rob mentioned, we're kind of pivoting into, you know, the journey part. So, so the how did you get here? And it's really interesting because, you know, you hear about sometimes people tell kids or, or whatever. So I'm just curious of, you know, when were you first identified a leader as a leader just in life? And then also tell us a little bit about, you know, when were you identified as a leader in your career? Were those sort of two different moments and, and kind of how you knew that being a president or a CEO could possibly be something in your path? I think as a person I identified as a leader, I think it was pretty young because I was very tall uh, and I was, I, I know that's weird. <laughs> so you're right. Okay. I see it in my daughter now. My daughter is turns eight uh, the day after tomorrow. She's as tall as a fifth grader, right? So she's in second grade. And it means you come like you command, like it's a physical manifestation of like it is true. And I remember being very early on, maybe second grade or whatever, and always being the tallest on the on the playground. And kids coming to me when something went wrong, like I hurt myself. Wow. I'm in a fight with someone. Can you come and help me? Right. And I remember that distinctly. So I think that. Now, did I think, oh, I'm going to be a leader? No, not at all. I just went <laughs> to put a plaster on someone's leg. But I think from a career point of view, I think it's a sadder story in that I was not identified as a leader. Mm. In fact, it was the opposite up until, you know, not that long, not mild times, not, but before I came to Media Arts Lab, I mean, it was, it was overtly said to me that I would never be more than a second in command. Wow. But it, that's okay. Because again, to your question before about what's the worst bosses, no hard feelings at all. I walked away going, watch me. Right. <laughs> and then by the way, Katrine, so I mean, like, what was the reasoning that someone identified you as a second in command? Oh, I think that, I mean, we could, that's like a therapy session, right? <laughs> no, I think, uh, I think. But because, don't do bits. That's why people tune in. They want to know. Right. I know. You know what, because I think, you know, you know, I mean, look, in all seriousness, I think I was just very helpful to be the second person in command mm -hmm. to that person, right? So I, I, I made the wheels turn. I made the people be, want to be there. I, so, so I, I had all the qualities of someone that was helping that person be the first in command. But by, but by the way, that was your, that was your role though at the time. Correct. So whoever was above you just didn't, they didn't lay the path for you or you yourself felt like, hey, I feel comfortable here? Or did you want to, you know? Oh, no, a, I wanted to. You know. No, I wanted to. And I wanted help in in in, in carving out a path mm. to get to running running an office. But again, it was a very constructive conversation. This isn't some salacious story. This is a very, it was a very constructive conversation. I'm very good friends with the person who did say it to me. But I think it wasn't a natural, whereas I felt it was my next step. Mm. There was powers at the time that felt that wasn't the case. And so you take, and therefore I did say, well, watch me. Uh, and, and, you know, that was an impetus for me to go and see what else was out there. And a little over a year after I joined Media Arts Lab, right? So um, they lost my game. That's fine. No problem at all. But, but I think it's not, again, it's in learning when something like that happens, you go, well, I don't ever want that to happen to somebody mm. else. And if someone came and asked me and said, hey, I want to go do X, and I didn't feel they had the ability or or the tools or whatever, then I would help them to either get there or explain that that wasn't their path and I thought their path, and then we can debate that. But it's just it's just how it's delivered and when it's delivered that's so critical. 
I think it's so interesting because you kind of said this earlier when it comes to like the world's worst bosses and, you know, really what we're talking about is like, what kind of adversity did we, did we face in, you know, in professional life that kind of, you know, made us flip a switch. And just to start on that note, professionally, I was at Goodbeat. I'd been there for a year. I think I'd been working maybe for six years or so, five, five years, six years. And I thought I was great. You know, honestly, I'd always gotten really good reviews. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm pretty good at what I do. And I had my one year review uh, and I was going in to speak to the managing partner who was going to give me my review. And I walked in being like, I am really, I cannot wait to hear what I'm going to be told. And I sat down and he said one thing to me, which is you're not as great as I thought you would be. And my first reaction was, well, neither are you. You're not as great as I thought you would be. I got really bitchy about it. I was like, whatever. And I went home and I was really pissed off being like, who does he think he is? I'm not as great as he thought I would be. Like, I'm not, I'm not a disappointment. And, you know, I woke up in the morning and I'm like, listen, I'm not as great as I thought I would be either. You know, I, I didn't, I haven't risen, you know, but what I didn't do was recede from it. I sort of leaned into it to be like, okay, then let's be great. You know, let's be great. I will never get that feedback again in my life. And I'll never look back on that. And I, that's always been, and to your point, Katrine, this, the person who told me is, you know, one of the people I regard so closely in my, in my career. And I, and I love him to pieces and I still talk to him to this day. He doesn't remember saying that to me, by the way, which is so interesting. Like that's a lesson in like what managers say to their people sticks more with the people they say it to than the managers themselves. But he has no recollection of ever saying that. I'm like, what are you talking about? I was at your desk. You were wearing this. Like, I know exactly what, like what everything looked like. Time stood still when you said that to me. So I think that was a moment I turned. And again, I never, I sort of never looked back. And I felt that morning after I had gotten some crappy feedback, this is a moment for leadership. I will be a leader now. Like I, I absolutely feel in my bones on a personal level. I think it came really young because, you know, we were, we were a super poor family and I had to contribute a ton to the household. And I felt like contributing to the household by, you know, we would, we would pick up bottles and redeem them. And so that we could put food on the table, we would cook, we would clean, we would iron clothes. I would join my mom to clean houses because we could clean more houses if I joined, you know, with her, like all of those things started making me feel like I was a, I was a contributing member. I was sort of leading in a way I was in charge of how much revenue we collected, collecting bottles. Like it felt like a small thing, but I was a little businesswoman and I was leading in that way. So I think from a young age, I'm, you know, six, seven, eight, I felt like I have the ability to contribute in a big way that makes a big impact, which at that point in time, I considered, you know, leadership, mm. you know, again, like Katrina, I had no idea I was going to end up being a CEO, but I could tell that if I did something and if I worked really hard at it, I could see the impact of it. And I liked the way that felt. I liked feeling like I earned the seat at the table, I earned the food on the table that day. That made me feel really good, really valuable. And, and like I was contributing something incredibly important. I know that could have put you on the CFO path. So I'm right. glad that <laughs> something required uh, to go elsewhere. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting that both of you guys talk about being identified basically as children, right? As, as leaders. Now, I'm curious, do you guys think that leaders are born or do you think that leadership is something that can be, a, can be taught, you know, into adulthood? Wow. I don't know if I have a really strong opinion on that. I guess I would answer it this way to say, you can stop a leader from becoming a leader really early in life if you're not careful. Like I do think people say, 
just the, the wrong things sometimes. And that could, combined with a bunch of other factors, totally prevent somebody from rising to the greatness they were destined to become had they not run into some of those people. So I, you know, I feel like some traits, I think, are things that we learn really young in life. I'll say that versus being born with it or learning it. Some things we are exposed to and we learn early in life. And then other things we sort of grow into based on the bosses that we have, the people that we work with, you know, uh, what suits our passion. But I, you know, I do, I do think people can say the, the most damaging things to people when they're young. Um, and that, that can often define whether or not someone becomes a leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I think it can be both, but I think it's it's more what the uh, averse reaction you can have if you if you push someone the other way. But but I think you can learn it. I think it is. It's a really difficult question. It's like sure there must be some scientific proof for it, maybe. But um, yeah, it's a it's a hard question. Listen, let, let, let me just simplify for you, Asha. The answer is they are born because Nancy and I were. We have the same birthday, August 14th. We're both, we're, both, we're both Leos. And if you look at our horoscope, you know, it says born leader. So, you know, <laughs> check your horoscope. Done. I love it. I'll take that. That's a good answer. Check, check your horoscope. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm December 14th, so I'm, I'm in the mix. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, got the, you got the number right. That's okay. <laughs> No, but it's interesting though that you guys say that because that that totally makes sense, you know, and, and not only can someone, you know, as Nancy, as you put it, maybe prevent somebody from, from becoming a leader, depending on what we say to them or, or how, what their experience might be as a child, but also that also ingrains in them the ability to take in, as an adult to take something negative that someone might say, you know, both Katrine and and Nancy, you guys both mentioned times where someone said, you know, you're not as good as I thought you'd be, or you're not going to be, you know, anything more than the second in command and use that as fuel to say, you know, actually let me prove you wrong, which is, you know, something that athletes do all the time. You know, obviously, you know, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, you know, you, you remember, you know, these stories of, uh, of how they channeled that into championships, you know? And so really, really, really interesting. Nancy, you know, you've spoken, you know, you just told us a little bit, you know, about what life was like growing up. And, and recently you've spoken a lot about um, your heritage as growing up as part of, you know, the Latin American. Hispanic community. Obviously, we've just come to the end of a Hispanic uh, Heritage Month uh, coming up soon. And so, you know, what, if any, role does ethnicity or color play in someone's position as a leader? Yeah, this is a really good question. And um, I've definitely been doing a lot of soul searching and talking about some of the challenges that I'm facing just as I'm doing a little bit of self-discovery. So, you know, earlier, Asha, you talked about suppression and I, you know, I've been talking a lot about, I grew up in the 70s and 80s when assimilation was the key to survival. You know, that was just what we did. My mother was from El Salvador. My father was from Puerto Rico. My mother brought people in from El Salvador that were staying in our basement and it was like lay low keep your head down and just try to be like them. That was the whole point, right? And there was a, sur- a survival reason for that. If we, if we stuck out too much, 
if we were too Salvadorian, you know, La Migra, the immigration would come and scoop us up and send us out, right? That was, even even if I was a citizen, that was sort of the perceived threat that we had. And so for all the years that I can remember, you know, without assimilation, you know, I, I was meant to blend in and, and be like everybody else. And then, you you know, you talk about the times today where we're talking about bringing our authentic selves to work, bring our, full, you know, bring, you, let's celebrate that you're Latina, that you're part of the Latinx community. And I have said, you know, quite publicly to, to the company is, you know, Asha and, and Rob, no, I don't, I don't know what that is. I don't know what that means because is that the thing that I left behind when I assimilated whatever, you know, 40 years ago or like, what, what are you talking? I don't know what that means. And it's a really scary thing to admit to a ton of people who are growing up in this new generation in which bringing your, your ethnicity, bringing your gender, bringing your identity into work is something that is celebrated. We're having more and more conversations about it. It is welcomed. I think people are looking for more leaders that come from diverse and underrepresented backgrounds. All of that is a positive for us. But when you grew up in a generation like I did, where you were supposed to push that stuff under it's very difficult to all of a sudden be like, here I am. I don't, I, it doesn't even come out. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that is. So I, I'm telling you the personal side of it because I see something happening, even though I may not be participating in it as much. I do think that we live in a world where we can talk about this stuff. I wouldn't dare say this 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because I was trying to play up like I was a part of everybody else and not my own thing. So that would have never been an accepted conversation. So I do think we live in a world where bringing our authentic selves to work means what I just said, not just bringing the full expression of your ethnicity or your identity or your gender, you know, to where you come. So I, I do, I see a path. I see a place that feels more welcoming, more safe to have these kind of conversations. I think we are richer as a result of having more diverse leaders mm -hmm. for sure. And I think people are welcoming that and seeing the benefits of it. But I do think, especially as we're looking at a Gen X group of people coming into leadership positions, we're going to face this identity situation that many of us have. It's, it's pretty common for anybody from a Latin background, you know, around my age, which is, which is 46, to have these kinds of feelings of, you know, not knowing really who we are deep down inside. I think there's, there's, there's something about our business, the advertising business, that I, I think at this juncture bears to be looked at, which is advertising got interesting when advertising had different voices. So when you look at the creative revolution, the creative revolution was driven not by the WASP culture that was there. The creative revolution was in reaction to that. So when you had Italians and Greeks and Jews bringing their culture into advertising, suddenly you got spicy, spicy meatball. Suddenly things got interesting because, wait, that's funny. That, that, I've never seen that before. And when you look at advertising, I, I, you know, I would look at the 90s when you have this very interesting, you know, when, when black culture, you know, infects advertising in the best way possible. When you look at Lil Penny or you look at Nike Freestyle, we had not seen this before. And suddenly we're like, that's cool. I love that. So we have to be open in our business, I think, to different cultures because different cultures uh, or outside cultures, that's what creates interesting things in mainstream culture. Yeah, for sure. And I think I think there's also the added nuance, and, and Nancy, you kind of touched on this a little bit, of like, even as much as our industry might embrace this level of authenticity, sometimes it's, it's weird because your family, who's from that previous generation, is not really understanding why you would be acting the same way at work that you would be acting at home. 
Yep. You know, and they would not support you saying that, you know what I mean? And so you also don't necessarily have that support system, especially when your culture, you look different, you know what I mean? So that assimilation is not necessarily as quote unquote easy. And so I think there's two things. It's kind of also our industry accepting it, but also us as individuals letting our family in on this and, you know, maybe even helping the older generations dispel some of those things that they've kind of got um, ingrained in their minds, you know? So true. You know, Katrine, it's, it's interesting because you're European, as you've mentioned a couple times now, and, and obviously living in the U.S. I'm curious to know how your experiences as a leader in Europe have differed from, from those in the U.S. Obviously, you know, you talked a little bit about kind of leadership styles in the U.K., but I'm sure that you're noticing nuances since you've kind of been in the U.S. And do you think that America requires a different type of leadership style? perhaps? Or, you know, were there differences, for example, in terms of recognizing, you know, the importance of diversity, for example, or is it sort of the same? Just curious to kind of know your thoughts. Look, I've been in the U.S. now for four years, so things are progressing rapidly, right? Particularly in the last two years, I think there's been so many questions asked of leaders, and that's happening everywhere in the world, like, or, or particularly at least in Europe and in, in the U.S., I think it's, it's happening. Um, so I don't know to what to what degree, like how fast it is happening in Europe. So I think the same questions are being asked globally. You know, when I talk to the managing director, our managing director in Japan, he's facing to varying degrees the same questions as were being asked in the US, uh, in the US, yes. China is the same, right? And and I think what's really fascinating is when I, whenever I talk to all of them, which is at least once a week, is they will say, well, in China, it's like this. And I can reassure them, believe me, it's not just China. This is happening everywhere in the world, right? It's just in varying degrees. That, that's the only difference. So I think from a leadership point of view, are there differences? Yes, but I think the differences are cultural. And I think the cultural nuance is so important, right? Like coming into a different country, it is so critical to just be an observer for a while and to accept that you don't know what it's like. I had never lived in the US before. I'd been on holiday. That's as much as I could tick off my list. But just being accepting that things happen in a different way. And some of those things being from the north of Belgium, some of the things are frustrating <laughs> because of the directness of the northern Belgians. But and some of those things are you kind of learn why they have value. I think the, the there's a book by Aaron Meyer called The Culture Map. Um, for anyone who hasn't read it, it's absolutely brilliant. There's actually a podcast our, the Armchair Expert podcast has her. It's an hour podcast. It's in the last 24 months. It's the best podcast I listen to because she's fascinating and she sort of lays it out. The differences globally in leadership styles. And I think it's cultural differences. And, and so that's, the, the, I guess that's been the big, biggest lesson for me coming into a different culture yeah. and accepting that. And particularly when you come into the US, you think you know it. Because you've seen the movies and you listen to the music and therefore you think you know it, but you don't really, right? Because there's a big difference between working with people and watching a film. Yeah, I mean, being from Canada, I totally agree. I mean, I thought I, you know, I've been to New York a hundred times, you know, <laughs> it's right there. And then I moved here, I'm like, oh, this is not the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, okay, well, thank you guys. Uh, you know, this is, uh, we're, we're about to sort of reach our close. And so this is where we leave our listeners with a piece of advice. And since we've got two of you today, we are going to uh, leave our listeners with two pieces of advice. Um, and so the first is, what advice would you both give to current leaders looking to elevate their relationships with their team and their business partners? I would say learn to listen and trust. I think that's the number one thing we can tell you know leaders is, you know, to Rob's point, we don't know all the answers, but surround yourself with people that do and then listen in to what they have to say and trust them to make the right decisions. Yeah. And I'll add, um, be open and be open to getting it wrong. I like that. I like that. Learn to listen and trust and be open to even getting it wrong sometimes. Those are great. And so the next piece of advice is for aspiring leaders. What advice would you give them looking to evolve into president and CEO roles as, as part of their career path? Let's say they're at the director level right now. I'd say observe, 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 and always try and raise the bar. I love that. And I would add, start to build your team now. You know, what does that look like? To, who do you want to lead with? You know, who do you have such terrific chemistry with that you would say, gosh, if I wake up in the morning every day and I get to work with that person or those people, I could take on anything. That's awesome. Fantastic. <laughs> wow. Good pieces of advice. That was really good. I wish, uh, you know, I wish I was a junior again. I'd be, uh, I'd be looking uh, uh, to want to work with. We have uh, a few open positions, Rob. Amazing. If you're, oh, so do we. <laughs> Listen, I, I spend most of my life as a junior copywriter uh, to this day. So uh, any junior copywriter positions, I'm there. Asha, any parting words before we wrap up? I mean, these. Thank you both for uh, joining us today. As I said before, and I'll say it again, you're both giants, you know, and the teams that uh, get to work underneath you guys have a wonderful privilege that they can observe uh, what amazing leadership looks like. So thank you, Nancy. Thank you, Kachin, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. This was great. Great. Thank you so much, everyone. And uh, thank you for all your time. I know you uh, you are busy people. So thank you. And thanks for being such great leaders. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Tune into LinkedIn. Follow the Disruptor series on LinkedIn and Instagram and listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Disruptor series podcast, Adweek's agency podcast of the year. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashydayny.com.